So welcome, Henry. Uh, welcome, Summer and Francis and all of the attendees. I want to just tell everyone that today we have Summer, who's with Boys, and Francis at, from Climate Action Society. Summer's also with Climate Action Society, and Henry Rowlands from the Detox Project. I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves. And I just want to welcome all of you and apologize first also for any time zone issues that happened today. Boys is Voices of Gen Z, and we're trying to really amplify the voices of Gen Z and help with sustainable consumption and hold corporations accountable for sustainable production. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Summer and we'll start. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Summer and I'm the Director of Digital Content for Voice and the Editor-in-Chief for Climate Action Society and I'm really really excited to be talking to Henry because all of his work is so fantastic and Francis would you like to introduce yourself too? Yeah so hi I'm Francis. I'm also a student at UCL and I'm an Events Director for Climate Action Society. Also really excited to be here. I think it's going to be such an interesting topic to talk about. Do you want to start with the question, Summer, or shall I start? Henry, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I'd love to. I'd love to. So basically, I'm the director of the Detox Project. I've been working first as a journalist and then topics surrounding toxic chemicals for the last 10 years. We set up the Detox Project in 2014 to try and enable people all over the world to find out their exposure to toxic chemicals. So that's my, that's my basic background. But before becoming interested in toxic chemicals in depth, I was a news agency journalist. So that's um, what I used to be able to communicate all of this information. Is it through your news journalist background that you became interested in the work that, the, that made you decide to start with the detox project? Or like, what's the story behind why you started the work that you're doing? It's a very long story. It's a very long story. I'll start with some family history, but don't, it, don't switch off everyone. It's only going to be short. So my great-grandfather was one of the three scientists who discovered the Nobel gases and also invented the neon light. And he was a chemist for a period of around... 50 years first at University of Cambridge, and then he was the Dean of the University of Bangalore. Soon after he retired, he started to realize that the chemistry that all of his colleagues had been working on was being used in the wrong direction. So that was straight after the Second World War, and, and he started what was probably one of the first environmental movements in Europe in 1955, which was actually to concentrate on the use of fluoride in water in London and to lower the amounts of fluoride that were being used because they'd just been introduced into drinking water. And since then, my whole family has been involved. My parents were involved in, in work on pesticides back in the 1980s, and they also started one of the first movements against genetically modified crops in the early 1990s, setting up something called GM Free Cymru in Wales, which was one of the uh, leading reasons that there are no GM crops grown in grown in Britain and all, also around Europe because the Welsh government has become expert on the whole subject. And so I grew up um, first in southern England, but then in West Wales on an organic farm. And so I've really been always interested in this whole subject, right, surrounding sustainable agriculture, toxic chemicals. And more specifically, when I left 
when I left Britain and started working as a news agency journalist. Sadly, the people who were my editors weren't very kind on publishing stories which would uh, damage the chemical industry as a whole. So I actually left being a news, news agency journalist and took on a role of publishing my own stories through a platform called Sustainable Pulse in 2012. And Sustainable Pulse generally covers all the issues surrounding toxic chemicals, sustainable agriculture. We now have a readership of around <coughs> 7 million a year, which is, which is good globally, just it's quite a niche area of interest. So, And from that point, we started realizing that the general public really had no access to knowledge. So the big problem surrounding toxic chemicals is that lots of people hear lots of information, but most of it goes in one ear and comes out the other because we're just flooded with information all the time about all sorts of problems, right? But the big issue is when you make things personal, it starts to get into people's heads that they need to do something about it. So as, as I said, in 2014, that's when we started the detox project. So that's really the background behind why I and my team are doing what we are. We're, we're, we're trying to make all of this topic personal and trying to bring it across to a much wider audience than the normal in audience of people who care about the environment into, into more of the mainstream audience of people who are often too busy to care. So that's, that's our aim as a whole. That's amazing and so, so important, like everything you've just said, even from what your grandfather did all the way to you. And so like, that's amazing and so impressive. <laughs> and thank you for all the work you do. So like growing from that, how, how quickly did the detox project become something that you managed to spread around the world and around the US? And where would you say your primary focus is? Sure. So we started the detox project actually with a project with UCSF in San Francisco, concentrating on finding out how people in the US are exposed specifically to glyphosate. And the first study we did, we found that roughly 93% of the US population has glyphosate in their bodies in some form. And so from, from that point, we realized that we needed to enable the public to start testing themselves. So we got in touch with many laboratories all, all over the world. Sadly, the laboratory world is controlled by the food industry. So back in 2015, if you as a member of the public wanted to go and test your food or your own, your own body, for example, your hair, to see what you're exposed to, the, food, the, the actual laboratories themselves wouldn't have worked with you. They, they would have said, well, we can't test because it, it goes against what the food industry wants. We luckily actually found a couple of laboratories in California who decided that they would go against the trend and start to test first we were testing people's urine all over the us but then we moved on to testing hair so we started it with a laboratory in france in strasbourg to test hair and they now test hair all over the world we work with the european parliament with the japanese government a little bit with the australian government and also with ngos in the us to enable people to find out their long-term exposure so if you test a piece of your hair you can find out what few chemicals you're regularly exposed to for example over the last four or five months if you test your blood or your urine you can only find out what you've been exposed to in the last week or in the last few days so that was our first target was to enable um, the general population to start testing themselves to as i said at the beginning to make it more personal to everyone 
But then we moved on to look at roots of exposure. So the roots of exposure are all sorts of things, right? Air, water, but predominantly for the general population, food and uh, food supplements are the main roots of exposure. So, and to, to most toxic chemicals. So some of the food brands came to us and they said, look, uh, we want to show that we're doing a good job. Can you certify that we're doing a good job? So we started testing food samples and now uh, we've tested literally hundreds of thousands of food samples all over the world to find out levels of specifically glyphosate, but also many other pesticides um, are in them. And we certify certain brands to show that they haven't got glyphosate in their, in their products. So that's kind of turned into our main focus alongside the testing of the general public as well. Yeah, it sounds like quite a big undertaking, both in, you said earlier, with like talking about it in the news, that sometimes it was difficult and also getting a laboratory testing. Just in case anyone who's listening to this doesn't really know much about glyphosate or any of the chemicals that you're testing for, why exactly is it an issue? And yeah, how, why should we be concerned about it? Sure, we didn't go after glyphosate by accident. Glyphosate is the most used herbicide in the world, the most used weed killer. Uh, it's in products like Roundup that lots of people have in their garages around the world. And you have a mass market. So it's used literally in every corner of the world. It's found in everything from rainwater to food, to the oceans, to breast milk, to pretty much anything you can imagine contains some some levels of glyphosate it's also the weak point of the whole industrial agricultural system why is it the weak point because in in reality the whole system has been set up surrounding one single chemical they they designed for example all gm crops or at least at a very large percentage of them to be sprayed with glyphosate what does that mean? Um, it means generally that you can plant a crop, any crop, soybeans, corn, and after it's growing, you can spray with glyphosate to kill all the weeds, but it doesn't kill the genetically modified crop. And so that's one issue. It's also used, which is probably the worst use of glyphosate, is used just before harvest. So just before you harvest oats or wheat or any pulses like lentils and beans what farmers do is within the two weeks before harvest to ripen it more quickly so they can get it to market they spray it with glyphosate and so that's how it gets into the food that you eat basically on uh, to, to speed up production and it's just to answer your question simply it's the the low hanging fruit of uh, the industrial agricultural system it's the it's the thing that if got rid of would damage them the most and that's the reason that we went after it first. We also, you know, look at all of the other uh, different pesticides that are out there. But glyphosate is the, is the big battle when it comes to changing the agricultural system and therefore our food supply to be more clean. Um, it's as simple as that. It's just truly shocking to me that this is allowed and that it still takes place. And how, how do you feel, like, personally on that level of like how how is it still happening and how do you think it will change do you think it will <laughs> it's a big question summer one of the one of the big problems with the 
agricultural industries, it moves very slowly when it comes to change because it's been designed in a certain way. The real only method of change is that consumers become aware and push brands and then the brands push their supply chain and then a the supply chain pushes the farmers to change. That started to happen till probably two or three years ago. In reality, if I went knocking on the door of one of the food brands, they would have just said, oh yeah, it's really interesting, but then just not really listened at all. But now they're forced to listen because people are interested in avoiding things that are going to cause them damage, right? So uh, when we're talking about glyphosate, it has so many different problems that it causes for us. And I'll get into them a little later, but the issue surrounding change is that basically we can't change anything without changing consumer habits. If consumers become aware of something, it affects the brand's bottom lines and they force change themselves. So rather than looking at the agricultural system as, and, you know, banging on about, oh, you've got to change regulations, which takes forever, or you've got to do, you know, something which tries to um, force force governments to to act it will take so long that really we don't have that time we don't have that time to change just to give you an, an example of a of a study that came out which was really shocking a few weeks ago and is a book called countdown which has just been published from 1973 to now globally the the sperm count of men has gone down by 60 percent and that is mainly due to endocrine disrupting chemicals, of which glyphosate is one of the main ones. It's a huge issue that has never been addressed purely because there have been such massive profits made out of one single chemical that it's been protected not just by the, the chemical companies that sell it, but also by the governments who want the current agricultural system to continue. So it's a really massive issue and i think really it's only the generation that is you know coming through now that can change this because people get stuck in consumer habits right if you're and i'm not being rude to old people but if you're over the age of 50 you're often already stuck in your consumer habits you don't have the ability to to easily shift what you're doing but when you're young, you, you get set in consumer habits when you leave home, when you start to you know, buy things for yourself. It's a massive time of shift. And, and everyone realizes, right? I go into boardrooms of food companies all the time, and they all have started to realize that things are shifting very quickly now. So it's exciting. It's, it's exciting because probably for the first time since the toxic chemical industry started to become powerful, which was in the 1960s, we actually have consumer trends changing what is happening lower down the low, lower down the line. So it's a it's a great time to be be around. I mean, as I said, my family's been involved for a long time, but they're jealous of me that I'm doing this now when they've had to bang their heads against the wall for the last however many years. So it's a good it's a good time to to create change. This everything you've just said is really recognised, especially by the voice community. We are all about holding corporations accountable and ensuring that consumers have the ability and the knowledge to be able to change. And we know how valuable this is in all industries. And as you say, the agricultural one is probably one that is missed out quite a lot. People don't see that. And so as part of that, have you found it hard even now for people to approach you or for you to change people's minds? And how 
do you go about doing it in a way do you do the shock factor or is it is, is it hard for you to get across to people what you're trying to say yeah we, we, we try and not be too shocking to tell you the truth it's because society is so split now between you know extremes that it's often better not to be too shocking and just to stick to what what's already out there and known but to amplify the messages that have been produced by science and that's really the most important thing because there is people in all camps right who like to amplify too much and and it, it just causes people to sit in their in their small boxes and say oh I'm not going anywhere because you know we don't really want to to deal with the abuse really I suppose you could call it so um, we found it easier to actually uh, go in with scientists and to say for example to brands and to others look this is the science uh, this is what consumers want by polling and by other you know other systems so really based on economics the sad truth of it that every is that that everything moves when there's risk and so if you can do true risk assessment of what the problem is and you can take that risk assessment and you can you can show it to the people who are trying to make money they then start to think and you know the cogs start turning how how fast they start turning is a big issue right and this has been seen in the recently in the oil and gas industry because before green energy was seen as kind of a hippie thing right but it's more recently become very mainstream and the only reason that it's becoming mainstream is because the big economics the big investors have started to divest away from oil and gas why did they divest away not because you know a group of people were saying oh it's really bad for the environment but in reality just because they started to see the economic um, of climate change and so once they start to see the economic risk they start to take action they start to change trends and so there's 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 two approaches that we take one is from the consumers to educate the consumers and so that's called bottom up right so you have the the that that whole education process but there's also something that a lot of uh, activist groups miss out which is there's also a top down approach which is that if you approach the the, the people who are actually spending the money and investing in all of the brands, investing, uh, often, often these groups are very, you know, gray suit type of people. So they're groups who are linked to pension funds and other such things. So they don't necessarily have such a strong opinion as the people who are going out selling chemicals, who are trying to protect their product. So if they see risk coming into the system and say, oh, you know, uh, we're going to lose our money over the next 10 years if we continue following this trend and how things are, they then start to change things from the top down. So both approaches are really useful, really useful. Which one would you say you've had the most success with? Like if you had to pick one, which one would you say? Generally, at the beginning, definitely from consumer education, because not many people before 2015 even knew what glyphosate or Roundup were when it came to linking Roundup with what's in your food, right? So there's there's been a big success on, on education. That's not just because of us. It's A lot of it came after the World Health Organization announced that glyphosate was a probable human carcinogen, though, so that it probably causes cancer which was announced in 2015. By the way, that was known back in 1985 by the EPA in the US. They actually announced that it probably caused cancer back then, but then they hid the report. So there are some, there's, there's 
been a lot of knowledge because of the media coverage of that and also because there was a huge legal case on glyphosate specifically which led which was just after Bayer bought Monsanto and they were very confident with their with buying Monsanto but sadly they I'm saying sadly sarcastically their shares are now down about 40% since they bought Monsanto and the reason being that a few months after they 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 made that purchase a school groundskeeper in in California took them to court for causing his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma which is cancer and he won and he won 289 million then a huge group of of people started suing suing them for glyphosate exposure they just had to pay out one of the biggest payouts in corporate history which is 10.9 billion dollars for exposure and it's still not finished i mean they still have billions of dollars extra that they have to will have to pay out in the next few years and so uh, amongst our work amongst the legal case amongst the world health organization work consumers have become aware of the subject for the first time which is great so that's been the most success it's only now that the corporate world is catching up with consumers are pushing pushing them to do uh, the, the the system is slowly catching up it usually happens slowly so i don't expect anything else yeah i think it's definitely because i think like glyphosate and just pesticides when people talk about the environmental movement it's something they said have been like starting it and that was 50 years ago basically and obviously exactly. your family have been working on it for themselves for generations i was just wondering what you were saying about sort of monsanto and these large organizations is it difficult i guess trying to work on this issue when perhaps there are people with other interests that are so powerful in terms of the amount of money these organizations have and how economically profitable it is for them to continue selling these products and this model of agriculture yes <laughs> so it's difficult it's difficult because basically until recently the food industry was connected to the agricultural industry at the hip so everything that the i shouldn't call it the agricultural industry because it's not farmers right it's 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 really the chemical industry that has infiltrated the agricultural industry so the chemical industry and the food industry lobbied governments constantly together so they were parts of the same groups there was something called the grocery manufacturers um, association in the us which was very powerful and also there's something called the Soybean Association in the US, which is still very powerful. If, if someone wants to plant soybeans somewhere else in the world, the non-genetically modified, they send a US government attache with the Soybean Association to go over and talk them out of doing that, right? As another example, Thailand wanted to ban glyphosate recently. Mexico has just banned glyphosate use from 2024 and all GMOs but they face such pressure from both the US government other governments and the chemical industry after they make such announcements so sometimes they just have to you know they have to give up literally so it's a big problem however there's a chink of light now because the food industry has split away from the chemical industry for the first time because they're the food industry is re realizing that the chemical industry is damaging their bottom line okay so the idea that consumers are criticizing the food industry for certain things means that they are losing money and the chemical industry isn't 
so they've started to move away. So the, the, the Grocery Manufacturers um, Association has split up. It's lost almost all of its main food industry components. And you, you have the ability now to enable some of these food, the players in the food industry to do the right thing. So there's, when it comes to, comes to that, the sad thing is that governments are mainly run by lobbyists. And for that reason, we constantly have the, the, the battle of trying to get through the message of the lobbyists who have the money. They have the ability to meet the politicians constantly, right? So, you know, um, if I want to meet a politician, I have to wait a few months if they answer me at all. If a lobbyist wants to get in, they get in tomorrow because that's how it works. So basically, it's a problem with how government is set up that causes the, the power of the chemical industry. They're, with Without the power of the lobbyist, the chemical industry would be, would be a tenth of what it is. So it's, a, it's an ongoing battle. But as I said, we hope that some players in the food industry and consumers can push that food industry into a better place. Yeah, I think what you said about the organisations in the US really reminded me of the National Farmers Union in the UK that are sort of very antagonistic to environmental movements in general. And I think, at least from my experience of like living in the countryside in the UK, a lot of farmers, they have like, a, they're quite economically insecure in their sort of business. They're really concerned about like running out of money. So, mm -hmm. and that sort of puts some people off because they think going organic will not be profitable. Do you, like what kind of alternatives are there really for on the bottom line in terms of food production for not using glyphosate and other pesticides? Yeah, it's the biggest question, right? Because farmers are the key to uh, what we eat and we need to support them. And I, as I said, I'm from a farming background myself and I understand that the majority of farmers live on debt. Basically, the system is, is created as a debt system. So it's very difficult for them to get out of the cycle. The seeds and the pesticides are sold to the farmer at the same time by the same people. So it's a catch-22 situation for them to get out of that, of that problem. And they also have to change their entire system that they've been working on you know, for the last 30 years, usually. So it's a big question. There are a few ways that things are changing. Luckily, the French government and the German government have uh, acted really well on this issue because they've banned or they're phasing out glyphosate as we speak. And they're doing a lot of research into the alternatives. So there are a few alternatives out there there's robotic weeding now which is which is getting very very good there's electric weeding which is actually a uk-based phenomenon but is is doing really well so there are some non-toxic alternatives coming to market which is fantastic which may change things but basically as you said it's all about the bottom line for the farmers and the only way to incentivize farmers to move in the right direction when it comes to clean food is to give them money to do so and so there are a few methods now, for example, regenerative agriculture, things that basically bring in new revenue streams to farmers, like carbon credits, like subsidy systems that are based on sustainable agriculture, which up until now, they really haven't been. But the EU just brought in Farm to Fork program, which is the biggest subsidy system in history, all based on sustainability. The British government, after Brexit, they bought in much better systems for subsidies for farmers. In the US, the current administration is working on 
carbon credit systems on other systems to bring in new revenue streams. So the only way to shift stuff from a farmer's point of view is to have a market for what they're producing and not to be kept in that constant debt circle, which has been what they've been stuck in for decades. And so it's a mixture of government action and on and private markets being able to, to actually deliver money into the pockets of the farmers in a different way up until it's been done now. It's very difficult for them, for the farmer themselves to listen to a consumer unless they're selling directly to the consumer. If they're selling into the system, which the majority of farmers have to, the system is what they have to do. So that's, yeah, basically there's some hope from the point of view of changing the system of actual money that goes into their hands, uh, because that's a way that you'll get them to just uh, to see a new way of doing things, I suppose, or an old way, because they used to all do it like this. So it's really an old way of doing things. How would you say that like certifications like the glyphosate one with the detox project, like have a play in this? And are there certifications such as like the organic certification? Does that take glyphosate contamination into consideration? Should it, or why does it not? Um, sure. So, I mean, I'm not, it's gonna sound strange, but I'm not really a fan of certifications. Basically certifications are set up to enable greenwashing, at least the majority of them. Organic in Europe is very good. USDA organic is not so good, but there are other certifications out there which are just used, you know, it's like natural. Natural certification doesn't mean anything. If you see natural on packaging anywhere, just scribble it out because it doesn't really mean a thing, right? It's just, I mean, I, I could say, you know, anything and I could write anything on a package. It doesn't mean anything. So there are only a very few certifications that actually mean something. And I would prefer true transparency. True transparency means that you can actually see, which is available with modern technology, what's actually in the product, right? So that it's tested that the brand has actually published what's been, what's, what's in its, and not just the ingredients, but also that they've tested, you know, all of the food contaminants and you can actually, you know, click on a QR code or something and see the, what's in that product. That's true transparency because it gives you exactly what is in the product. Sadly, we haven't quite reached that point yet. So we bought in glyphosate residue free certification for one specific reason, which is to move the understanding of current certifications. For example, USDA or organic doesn't require any pesticide testing. It, it's a system system approach, right? So once food gets off the organic farms, most of the organic farms are very clean. It goes into a supply chain. Uh, the supply chain should be tested as it goes through because it stops fraud within the system, but it's not. So uh, just to give you one example of that, we, we tested pea protein, which is you know a booming market now because everyone wants to eat plant-based food. So the pea protein supply is mainly from Canada, Germany, and the Northern US. And what they do is they take all of that, they process it in four facilities in China, just four, all of the pea protein, and then it comes back to the US. Now, it's wonderful. You think, you know, you're getting organic peas. They're all grown perfectly in wherever they are. Someone comes and checks on the farm that everything's being done perfectly and then goes into the supply chain, goes to China, some of it gets swapped out for conventional peas because the Chinese use the organic peas for their own supply. And then uh, they sell it back as USDA organic 
labeled pea protein. Non-controlled supply chains. So if you're looking at a brand, you want to ask them if they've got a controlled supply chain, which means that they know from the farmer all the way through to the, the final product, what's happening. Because if they don't, they don't really know what they're selling. So there's some very good brands out there which actually do that. For example, in the pea protein space, there's a, a big seller of pea protein called Purius, which is actually the supplier of Beyond Meat, which actually has a controlled supply chain. So they can see what's going on throughout the supply chain. They can test everything and they can see. But when you get to some of the bigger brands, they have no control at all over what's in, their, in, in, in going into their final product. So it's very, traceability is a massive issue. And so... Glyphosate residue free basically is to provide information to the consumer that that product has been tested. Um, we only do glyphosate. And the only reason being we'd love to test all pesticides is that the laboratories haven't standardized which pesticides are tested. So therefore you could go to one laboratory and you test just for a certain group of pesticides and another laboratory and test for another. So it's impossible to set up a, a really good pesticide residue free certification. So we concentrate on glyphosate, as I said, as low hanging fruit to make sure that we can have some transparency within supply chains, both of organic, conventional and conventional products to see that they've actually been tested. Because I, I except for non-GMO, which doesn't test for anything because they only concentrate on non-GMO. A lot of glyphosate goes into non-GMO um, crops like oats and wheat, which are not GMO. So the non-GMO market is tested fully for just for genetic modification, not for pesticides. So when you see a non-GMO, it's great, right? It's a, it's a good thing. You, if you have non-GMO, you have organic. But to actually be tested for the pesticide world, I think we're the only certification, there's a couple more that have been concentrating on glyphosate, but that, that says that that product has been tested specifically for one of those pesticides, which is in this case, glyphosate. Okay, yeah, I think it's interesting how transparency, I guess you would think the certifications make it really obvious, but they don't. How do you, how do you think like we can, how do you think we can like better communicate things to the public and how exactly do we go about transparency beyond sort of starting certifications? How do people get the full information? I wish they could. At the moment, it's very difficult to tell you the truth. It's very difficult because the brands have not been ever been pushed except for the last couple of years on transparency. So if you can push them, and this is a job of the consumer to push for transparency and by asking the brands themselves on social media and saying look can i see your testing reports of all of the food contaminants that are in your in your products it should be a basic information right you want to know what you're putting in your body for example i tested recently some some products for a member of the public and they found out that they've been eating something which contains about 70 pesticides constantly for the last 20 years but the 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 point is that the knowledge of that is not even within the brand because the brands themselves aren't testing. So they don't know what's in their products. Some of them do, but the majority of them up until recently didn't know anything about what was in their products. And so transparency, true transparency is, is based on actually revealing testing results. And then you can see, and we're not saying that you have to have zero of all of these contaminants because it's pretty much impossible to have zero of all of these contaminants. What we're saying is if you test, you can actually find out how to lower some of those contaminants. And so you're protecting human health. 
and the environment at the same time. So that's the that's the main message that people can carry out. And it's not that difficult nowadays because brands constantly listen to social media. They're constantly on Instagram, which is where most of the brands live. And and so from that point of view, it's a it's a great platform for consumer discussion. So from a Gen Z perspective, if it's really hard to like access this information, what would your key advice, if you could say one thing for us as Gen Zs to do, would it be to have that conversation on social media or how can we make the change? Sure. <laughs> one, of the, one of the ways is social media pressure. And the other way is making sure that you buy products that are as transparent as the system allows us at the moment, right? So there are a number of certifications out there, which I would buy knowing that they're not perfect, but still, you know, you have organic, non-GMO, glyphosate residue free, B Corp, which is a great certification. All of, all of these things mean that they're at least trying. Okay. So you're not, we, we can't ask for perfection yet couple of years we'll ask for perfection but uh, at the moment we'll ask just you know for what's possible so as long as we can change our buying habits to make sure that we're buying things that are are healthy for us i know there's there's another issue here which is that organic is more expensive right which is a, a major problem nowadays where people are pressured for for money so there are things like you know farmers markets other methods of of looking at certification so that for example you're buying non-gmo more regularly which is not as expensive you buy organic as much as you can but as long as you're moving in that direction the system changes just because of uh, individual people going out and changing it but social media is the the fastest push of change because if you look on an instagram post of a brand that they've put out their latest latest product you'll have you know, on most of the brands, not the most popular, but the average brand, you'll have 20 to 100 likes on those, which is not a huge amount. And so if if people are regularly commenting on those brands and saying, oh, you know, how transparent are you? Uh, Can you tell us this, this and this? They'll start to get the message because their marketing departments meet every week with the board and say, look, this is what people are asking us. And if a few people are asking the right questions, it means that there are thousands of people who are interested. So basically, that's the power. And, and brands, brands are shifting as we speak. So we need as many people to be doing that constantly to create real change. Amazing. Thank you. So if we go to the chat, we've got quite a few questions in there now. So Maya asks, do you have any resources or readings for people to look at around this issue? Yeah, sure. Basically, there are a few. On the Detox Project website, we have a huge research database, which is kind of made bite-sized for, for people. And, and you can also go deeper into detail when you need to. That's, that's one of the main resources. On toxic chemicals as a whole, things like Pesticide Action Network is really good. It's got a fantastic database of information. They're global as well. So, you know, they have focus on your local region, which is always useful. Those are probably the best resources on pesticide issues from from a point of view of education and trying to learn more and also trying to put out specific points. So, yeah. Thank you. Lucy asks, how do you think we can go beyond raising awareness about environmental and health issues to build upon current interests to make actual changes? Yeah, one, lots of lots of answers to that question. 
one of them is to become politically active. I think it's important that, that people become politically active. I think there's the possibility to shift the new generation of politicians much, much more than there was the old generation of politicians. So there's some hope to a degree there. And, and secondly is, is uh, to not just, not just rely on, on the computer. There's, there's a, a wonderful thing called a telephone and it would be great if people would actually ring up brands and they would ring up and talk to politicians. It's amazing how much time people, especially now with COVID, how much people who you couldn't get through to before have time now. And so uh, the, the ability to target in your local area people in positions of power, but not just in positions of power, actually who are shifting, shifting consumer interest in things, for example, the brand managers, et cetera, et cetera. It may, it may seem stupid, but I, I think that having real conversations with people is, is actually quite useful uh, because people are so unused to that nowadays. I cold call people all the time. It's amazing who I get through to, right? Which just, just an example of that. I was given a list of actors who uh, might be interested in the subject and I cold called them all. And I got through to Liam Neeson on the phone. He just picked up the phone, said hello. I called Pierce Brosnan in Hawaii. He picked up the phone. We talked for an hour. It's like, you know, there's, there's all of these opportunities to actually get involved and do something which is beyond the computer. And people, people find it kind of touching to start talking to people again. It's just weird, but there we go. Yeah, I think that's definitely true for UCL students as well, just being in London. There's also another question from Lucy, which is, what is needed or could be improved about communications in this area? The main, the main thing about communications is the mainstream media is, is not a helpful beast. And so uh, one of the, the methods that people have been using is to uh, use alternative media as, as much as possible. There, there's a big problem with trying to get stories on this subject into the main places that need and get mainstream attention. But again, I think the expertise of the young generation in communication is the most important thing because people are very siloed into, you know, reading the Washington Post or the New York Times or the, well, actually I won't include the Guardian, they're one of the only good things on toxic chemicals, but there are loads and loads of media out there that needs amplifying. And so amplifying it generally happens on social media again. So the, the ability to pick new sources that are accurate and to, to spread that news as widely as possible is something that we're not experts at, to tell you the truth. And none of, none of the environmental activism world has been expert at that. And they're getting better. But sadly, the other world, which is the people who are trying to make loads of money and kill everyone, very good at it because they're very targeted. They, they have specific targets, they go after it. Whereas the so-called liberal world, everyone has their own opinion. You know, they go off in all sorts of directions. There's not much organization as to how to coordinate a group of people and to make sure that they have a targeted message. Uh, and that's, uh, I suppose, a problem of society, but I think something that we can solve with a little bit of better organization of communication. So 
I, I, I like I like the question, Yvonne, of how did I get the numbers of of the people? I got. I, let's just say I got given them. I got given them by a nice uh, a nice uh, a nice pigeon. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the hard part. But you can do that on the local level. I think that's so very important. Like what you yep. said. On, a, on a local level, from the point of view of numbers in reality, it's very easy. Politicians open to talk, especially on a local level, about these subjects. And most of the success on a, has come on a local level, right? In, in the US, across the US, on pesticide-free campuses, on, on getting rid of pesticides from parks, and has been massive success in a very short space of time. And it's happened all over the world that there's actually been local campaigns that have put pressure to, to ban the use of toxic chemicals in their local environment. And there are a few networks which I can, I can send afterwards, which are, are basically networks to get involved in. Summer and Francis, do you have another, any other questions? Is that in, in the UK, one of the biggest users of round up our local councils for like their parks and managing things like that so definitely you can talk to people on the local level but yeah, yeah. i think also just saying thank you in general for coming along thank you francis thank you summer it's been a pleasure yeah and henry i just wanted to thank you as well this has been really informative and it's been great and also for us some summer i think you probably agree with me on this just rewarding in the sense that we actually do the same thing we we do look you know we, we're bottom up the way that we look at our analysis and we look at the product and then we're also top down and we're trying to do that and we're trying to push corporations that to say to show them that they have to be transparent, that transparency is rewarded. And we're really fighting for that. Summer is going to be heading up our editorial. So it will be more focused and it will be more targeted for what we're trying to do. So I, we look forward to working with you and continuing this fight because I think it is, you know, it is existential. It is something that we have to do. It's not no longer a nice to do. It's not something that we can do in a, you know, on a, on a scale of just marginal point of thing and it has to happen so so i want to thank you for joining us today and i hope that we can continue to have some of these conversations going forward and really hope to continue fighting with for this with you as well and support your group thank you yvonne it's, it's been really great and I, I look forward to supporting all your work because i think what you're doing is unique so thank you great. very much thank you